Brazos Stories with Hugh Stearns is a podcast that encompasses the characters and stories of the Brazos Valley. As the fabric of a community is woven from the threads of the stories of the people who reside within. In this podcast, Hugh, a local business owner and lifelong resident of the Brazos Valley, interviews individuals you may know or should know who are contributing to our community life. The mission of this podcast is to tell the stories of the Brazos Valley that will create a strong sense of community in a way that builds bridges across the divides. Our goal is increased understanding and empathy. We do this because our mission at Stern's Design Build is to design and build health and happiness. We seek to do this in the homes of our clients and in the broader community as well. Today, we're with Teresa Mangapura, uh, from the Brazos Valley Food Bank. Hi, Teresa. Hello. We want to get to know you and your story and the story of the food bank. Let's start with you. Where did you grow up? Uh, yeah, this might be a surprise. I'm from um, Flint, Michigan. Uh-huh. So, That's interesting. Yeah, um, I am from Flint, Michigan and um, still have family there. Um, not so many right in the, the city itself, but maybe more in some of the suburbs, but yeah, long history in Michigan. Um, and I'm here in this area because of my spouse. Yeah. So we'll send them some bottled water, eh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bottled water. I mean, water is the water situation was definitely, um, one quite a crisis actually, yeah. um, but quite a crisis for a lot of industrial Midwestern areas as well. They just got, um, a little bit more attention for it and, and a lot of bad mistakes made along the way by government officials and cover up, you know, a lot of bad stuff around it. That's why it got the new, the attention that it should get. But Flint also has other issues <laughs> besides the water, but there's a lot of good people trying really hard yeah. to, to bring it back, just like folks in Detroit. So um, Is- I'm definitely not going to bad mouth where I grew up. Yeah, def- definitely. The uh, didn't um, is it Michael Moore from Flint? He's not from Flint proper. Um, he is from a suburb. I always like to tell people that, but yes, he is from the Flint area, and he his story was very much based on the exodus of General Motors and what that did to to um, working class blue collar workers, um, of which I have a lot of that in my family. So yeah, sure. I'm very familiar with that. Never got to meet Michael Moore, but yes, <laughs> yet. <laughs> oh no no I don't think I don't think I'm, I don't, I'm not I'm not um important enough I don't think for him anymore so. <laughs> well so tell us about growing up in Flint you know how did what, what was that like so you know the good things about it at least when I was so I, I'll age myself I'm I'm 52 so I grew up in the born in the 70s grew up there in the 70s it was very diverse um I mean to go to a public school which I did for most of the time. Um, my friends were of all different races, religion. Um, there's a very large uh, Jewish population as well in Flint. So my best friend was Jewish. My two other best friends were black and I didn't know anything different than that, to be honest. Um, and there's things about that that I miss tremendously, um, have, that having been my, my upbringing. So those were good things. Then in the 80s, gangs started to be a pretty bad problem. Um, 
And I think all of that also stemmed into when there was the pullout of General Motors. So, you know, there's a lot of, there were a lot of poor people there. And our family would have been considered decently poor, getting, working on being more um, middle class. My dad, my dad got a job at GM. So he's a factory work, factory worker. Um, and during the, that time period, you could do a lot of great things with um, with the money that you could make with a job like that. And he would take all the overtime you could get and all of that. And um, But I didn't know that we would have been considered lower income until my parents said, you know, go no longer going to public school. So for my last three years of high school, they sent me to a private school. And then they, then you're like, then it's like, whoa. There are people are who live differently. <laughs> These people have a lot of money and everyone's white. So, you know, I mean, and, and, and I'm white. So, but it just, it was, a, it was a shock, you know, just a different, a different within my city, a different way that people were living. Um, and so I got to experience all of that and I don't regret any of it. I mean, I think going to a private Catholic uh, high school got me more motivated and interested in college and, and going on and doing different things other than staying back and working, um, with what my family knew, which was at General Motors in some capacity. And I'm not at all um, bashing that. I have relatives that work there and and they're thriving and they're doing well. That just wasn't my jam. So that's not where. <laughs> where well, I'm I glad they're up. doing well because it certainly was a long time where people weren't, you know, my, uh, my parents grew up on the Western side of Michigan um, and came from very similar my father came from a very similar background of um, my the, his people had worked at GM and, yeah. and different plants over there. One of the things that about Michigan that I don't know that everybody knows, but the food that comes out of the ground in Michigan is so wonderful. Yeah. It's that glacial till, the tomatoes, the berries, everything just tastes so good. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up. My mother's father always had a big garden and tomatoes were his thing. And it was literally just like picking it like an apple and you would just eat it like just in, in there's a saying kind of that you can just kind of throw anything in the ground in Michigan and it'll grow. It is a lot easier to grow things, but yes, thing fresh. And my grandmother canned a lot. Yeah, the, you're right. Absolutely. The, you can grow a great bounty um, in Michigan. And it and tastes different. Do. Yeah. Yeah. It tastes uh, those tomatoes. You know, I, I grow tomatoes here and it's always it's never disappointing. Growing things is always wonderful. But yeah. Man, anything for a Michigan tomato, that's for sure. <laughs> it's been a long time for me, too. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, okay, tell us from high school till you got to the Brazos Valley, what was going on? So then um, I went to Michigan State University um, and, you know, got through that. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I am my, my heritage or ethnicity, however you want to call it, is Italian-American. And so... Stereotypically, you need to get a trade that you can get a job and stick to the path and all that. And I tried to do that. It didn't didn't work out well. So I ended up being an English major. And my dad's like, what are you going to do with that? This is the biggest waste of money, blah, blah, blah. Thought I wanted to be an attorney, um, a lawyer. Um, don't quite have enough the right skill set for that. But that that passion for justice was where that was taking, that, taking me to that. Um, but since I didn't really know what I was going to do after I graduated, I, I stuck around in East Lansing and worked for the Michigan Humanities Council, which was introduced me to nonprofit and grant making, um, which was kind of exciting. Um, 
then, you know, things happen. You, you meet someone you like. So I met my husband, (laughs) um, and he, um, he's a pretty smart guy, um, and went to Cornell. And so we ran over to moved over to Ithaca, New York, so he could get a PhD. Um, and while I was there, I figured I really wanted to go into social work and, you know, Columbia would have been great. It would have been expensive at the time, the university of Michigan, which I still had residency because we hadn't been gone long enough was the number one social work school. So, so you, you get your PhD, I'm going to go back and get my master's, you know, this will all work out. It'll be fine. Um, and did that. And got a master's in social work with a focus on policy and planning. um, Advocacy is very important to me. Um, Maybe more the systemic type work was where my interest was not in being a counselor and ironically enough, not being an administrator, but that is what I have been. And then husband got, did a stint um, in Georgia for uh, his postdoc and then got the a job at Texas A&M. So he's in the plant pathology department and that's what brought us here. So from Michigan to upstate New York and then South, that must've been somewhat of a culture shock. Yeah, it was a big one. Yeah. Southeast tech, Southeast um, U.S. is not Texas, not the Midwest and it's not the East coast. It's its own thing. Um, and it was, I talked too fast for everyone there that's just the least of the concerns that I had, we had moving there. I mean, I had trouble understanding people's accents. Yeah, it was, a, it was hard. And at the time I was oh, weird. I used to wear my hair in like a crew cut, short haircut. My husband and I don't have children. And so people didn't know what to think of me. That's just the <laughs> truth. <laughs> but I was like, that's your issue. Right. I'm just here to do the work that I'm doing. And fortunately for me, I got, they took a chance on me. I got to run the rape, the equivalent of the rape crisis center and the child advocacy center was under one nonprofit. And that's what I did the three years that we were there in in Georgia. Um, And it was an amazing, challenging, difficult, all of the, all those things wrapped together experience, but wouldn't trade it, trade it for the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting uh, aspect of, of what you do. I mean, I'm sure it must be rewarding. It's certainly needed, but it's also hard to work in poverty and such people's the worst parts of their lives. And, and, and those are hard things to do. How, how, do you have a, you know, how do you, how do you manage that? Hmm. Probably not as well as I should. Um, you know, especially when I was in the position in um, Georgia, I was young and the systematic issues and the injustice just really got to me and people not acting the way they're supposed to just, and I don't even mean like perpetrators and of someone who's perpetrating violence. I mean, the legal Social system, injustice. Yay, the everyone just, you know, things that things that you think are supposed to happen because it's the United States and it's just not working out the way it's supposed to. And that, that's, those are always hard lessons, but they're obviously needed lessons for all of us. So I took a lot of it home. I mean, I, I run, I haven't been doing as much of it lately. Just, I don't know why I can't explain it being busy, but running is my stress reliever, my endorphins, uh, whatever you want to say helps with the endorphins. I I like being outside. I I actually enjoy being alone, but not too much alone so that I'm too much in my head. So running helps me. I make, I've made a lot of some of my best work decisions. I think when I've been able to work through things through my head running. Yeah, no, I think we, all of us in the work in the nonprofit sector um, have to figure out that balance and 
each, you know, now that the position that I'm in now, I'm, I'm enough removed from it that it's not so much the individual stories that are going to, um, as they did when I was at the um, the center in Georgia, I, we were a smaller and a leaner organization. So I was very close to the work. Um, here, it's more of the just politics, people not seeing, the, seeing things the way that we see them as what should be supported or what should be changed. It's those kinds of challenges that and, and to be honest with you, the stuff that all businesses right now are dealing with, turnover, making sure our employees are happy, um, having enough money to pay people the right, you know, more than the living wage, all of that. Those are the things that are heavy on my mind. Right. I can certainly relate to all of that. The, yeah. uh, well, and, and you certainly run a much larger organization than I do. And you've been at the food bank for a long time. How long have you been there? Um, 2005. Yeah. When we started, when I started there, there was three and a half of us that worked there and our budget was about $300,000 and now we're at 30 employees and it's 3 million. So yeah. Wow. That's some significant growth. And, and I don't like to say that that is all, that is not me. I don't like to talk about me. In fact, I absolutely hate it. That is, um, we were a small food bank and we were comfortable being a small food bank, but to be honest, we were underperforming. And by underperforming, I meant that there were people that were more people that I was at all comfortable with the first day I walked in the door that were falling through the cracks. So right. me not being able to say no to every opportunity that comes our way is another problem I have, but it is where we've gotten to where we've gotten. And I've, I've got some key people that work here that understand that that's important as well. So they've been along for the ride for a while. Yeah, that's certainly helpful. Yeah, that's interesting, and and so that's a that's a phenomenal amount of growth for any organization. Of course, we we tend to differentiate private business and and um, nonprofits, but I think you know I'm in a I'm in a business organization. I would love for them to let nonprofits in because I just think there's so much to be learned between the two, and there's mm -hmm. there's just so many similarities as well. The um, so you've grown tremendously. So this is going to be hard to quantify, but I'm going to ask you to anyway. So you have a you have a pool of need and you have a pool of resource, and since you've grown so much, I've got to assume that you've made that ratio far better. But still, how what does that look like? What you know for people who may not know, you know, is 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 hunger an issue in the Brazos Valley? Sure. Yes, absolutely. So there's the work that we do that is going to help prevent um, individuals from needing to wait in a line at a food pantry. And that work in our in, that we do here is still in its infancy and new. And so there's a whole lot of people that are not getting to be served in the programs that we have for that because they're so very one-on-one um, -on -one intensive um, by our staff and by the person that's looking for to change their life that way. So that's going to take us a while to get on there. As far as the need, as far as hunger, there's pretty good data that we have on food insecurity for the entire population as well as just the the population of children by each county. Um, if we do the average of what that is for um, the six counties that the Brazos Valley serves, we're talking about one out of every seven households um, is at risk of hunger. If the household has a child in it, and depending on which county, um, it can be it's one out of five households. And so let me define what hunger and food insecurity is. We're not talking about famine, not third world. We're not talking about people going two weeks without eating. It, it's it's not knowing always where your next meal is coming from. So it may be on one day that you're forced to skip a meal or the mom is forced to skip the meal or two days of the week, you split the meal among five people, things like that. More than um, 
just not eating at all. And oftentimes that has to do with the time of the month. Um, So towards the end of the month, if you're on a tight budget towards the end of the month, any one unexpected expense throws everything off. Um, And so food pantries are pretty busy towards the end of the month. Um, Their lines are a little bit longer because that's when people are like, okay, we've done everything we can with the income. Someone needed to get shoes. Someone needed to go to the doctor, tire, whatever the case may be. $200 is a lot of money. And now we've got, we can't go to the grocery store. So visiting a food pantry keeps them in their home with their car. The kid got the, the child got the shoes, whatever the case may be. And everybody ate, but it is having to reach out and get help, which not everybody wants to do. Exactly. Well, who wants to do it, right? Nobody yeah. wants to do that. They And there's a different kind of uh, food insecurity, and I'm not sure that it should be even called food insecurity. I don't even know if it has a name, but people who are poor end up getting nutrition, getting um, in ways that aren't necessarily healthy. And then they it exacerbates their situation because now they've got health issues that are very expensive on top of the uh, other things. Can Can you speak to that a little bit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So and a lot of food banks are speaking to that now. Um, it has to do with, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's food insecurity. And it's mainly, I think the term they're using now is food scarcity in the way that, so food desert can be, you don't have a grocery store near you, but it also could be that all you do have near you is a convenience store, like within walking distance or, and we know what's at a convenience store. Some of them have maybe a bunch of bananas in one, one part of the store, but the rest of it is going to be high calorie, high protein, high salt, all of those things, kinds of food that fill you up quickly, but are not good for your health, not good for your body index, all of that stuff. Um, and that is what uh, a lot of people have access to. A lot of children have access to. Um, and so Hunger can look like someone who's overweight, and that's hard for a lot of people to, to wrap their brain around. It can be someone who has diabetes. It can be someone who has, has hypertension. And the last thing as a food, and I embraced this a long time ago, the last thing I want to do as, a, as the food bank director is provide, the only thing we provide those folks that already have a chronic condition is food that's going to make it worse. So I'm not saying we don't accept soda as a donation. I'm not saying we don't have chips and we don't have cookies, but everything in moderation, as we all try to do with our own life, is what's going to be very important for the people who are relying on us for a meal. So balance is very important. Um, We have a couple of programs. We have folks that are nutrition educators. That's specifically what they do is work with folks that are eligible for SNAP, so um, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or as people know it, food stamps, to modify recipes. <laughs> so if you're used to making it this way from your culture, if you try it this way, it may be a little more healthy. Um, these are the kinds of things that you're going to get if you go to First Baptist uh, Church Pantry or the downtown Church Pantry, Baptist Church Pantry. And this is these are the kinds of things you could do to make a meal out of this and stretch it further a little bit of we all could use this i'm I'm not saying that everybody can use nutrition education absolutely Um, what to do with dried a bag of dried beans you know if you aren't if you've never experienced that or had to do that in your family that's going to seem like a weird thing to get you don't want it but it can be you can make a lot of meals out of it but sometimes you just need to learn that or be told that Um, if you didn't have a grandmother or mother that did that then you don't know that it's not something you're born with Right, right. 
We will be right back after this short message. Are you tired of having to spend your free time on home maintenance? Or do you have a family member that is unable to take care of their home? Introducing Stearns Home Care, an annual home maintenance subscription service. We come out to your home six times a year to take care of all of your home maintenance needs, such as cleaning gutters, replacing weather stripping, flushing your water heater, and much more. In addition to the scheduled maintenance, we are also available for handyman services. We offer free home estimates, so sign up on our website at stearnshomecare.com or give us a call at 979-696-0524. So in terms of the food desert, um, is what are the statistics here in terms of distance to travel? It seems to me as I look at it that I'm guessing northwest part of Bryan doesn't seem to have close by sources of nutrition. Um, um, And it seems that because Brian has single member districts, it seems like it wouldn't be hard to create policy that would encourage or incentivize a better distribution of grocery stores. Hmm. Are there any efforts in that direction? Not that I, not that I'm aware of, that does not mean that it's not happening. I'm pretty certain there's another HEB coming, but you're, I don't think it's in the area you're describing. So that the exodus of grocery stores to areas where the population tends to be lower income has contributed to the problem. Um, but there, there's a lot of factors involved in all of that. Um, grocery stores do need to make a bottom line. They need Absolutely. to be able to sell um, their products. Yeah. So no, I don't have much that I can, I can say about that in particular, but I can say that for instance, we serve Madison County as well. And Madison County has um, one food pantry for the entire county that's overwhelmed by the amount of need there. They also have a Walmart and a Berkshire Brothers, and that's it. So they don't have a lot of competition, and the prices are very high at both of those Hmm. stores. And as I'm sure you know, Hugh, there is no public transportation. There's hardly any in Bryan College Station, but there really isn't in the other rural counties that we serve. So um, most people have some kind of vehicle. It may be one that's on its last legs, but they have one out of necessity. They need to keep that vehicle. And then they, they need to go to those couple of stores that they have options for. Um, and I would consider that a food desert. We started a mobile food pantry in 2007. So we've been doing that now since 2007. Once a month, we go out to the fairgrounds and set up a makeshift pantry that cars drive through. And we've been doing it once a month since 2007 to add to, to supplement with that pantry, the good work that pantry is already doing, but they're not just a pantry. They're also the resale shop and then the utility assistance provider and all of that. So, and interesting that you say that, you know, some of our more rural counties don't, um, like the acknowledge when, when, when we bring a mobile pantry there, there's an admission that there's an issue. And and that's right. hard for some of the leaders to get behind. Yeah, and it's interesting. I think that is such a big issue because it, it's that concept of community. And you know, we always and I, I believe it's true. And in many respects, we have such a wonderful concept of community. When somebody is in need, if people know about it, they 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 reach out. But we but there's a there's a concept of community that we don't do so well at, and that is the sustainable things like saying, okay, we need to incentivize a grocery store. We need to make sure that we've got mass transit. I mean, uh, you know, a perfect example of this is the A&M students who all have 
most well, I shouldn't say they all who most of whom have plenty of money and they live within close proximity. They have a fantastic bus system. Mm-hmm. The people who work at A and M have to come from a much further, and there's no bus system, essentially no bus system for them. So it's it's that sense of community that hey, let's look out for everybody that we seem to be missing. And I think it's an opportunity for us to develop and build that kind of, that sense of community. And and that has to connect to people who are creating policy as well. Yeah, I mean, I I love to be able to tell people that we've been doing a mobile pantry since 2007, just because people are like, oh, I'm glad it's there. But the fact that that's needed is not a success story at all whatsoever. Exactly. Um, Or that it's only done once a month as well, I'm sure. Yeah, Yeah. right. Yeah, you got to be grateful for what, what we can do while recognizing what needs to be done, right? You know, back on the topic of the um, chronic disease and, and all that, we have a whole um, health promotions section of the food bank that focuses on that. Like I already described the nutrition education, but also um, what is called the screen and intervene program. And that's working with healthcare partnerships. So your health for alls, um, some of the hospitals, um, clinics, the, the health department, and anyone that's coming in to those um, facilities for whatever it is, their health issue can be screened for food insecurity with two simple questions. And if they are in need of food assistance, the, the doctor or whoever's working with them, the nurse, depending on what they've decided for their location, it can be, okay, so these are the resources that I know about. These are where the food pantries are. Go for it. But a couple of them actually have boxes that we've uh, procured for them and put together for them um, to give handout right then and there to that person that has food that's acceptable for someone that may have diabetes or hypertension. And that is a little, little gem that we do that a lot of people don't know about. um, But I think it's, tied into exactly what you were talking about that food is medicine it can be but exactly. food can also be <laughs> our worst enemy in many different ways so again it's important so vital to me that we have fresh produce and we have meats and we have dairy and we have eggs and we have all the things that all of us love to have in our diet available to someone it doesn't matter what their, their background or income is or whatever that's the way we make our community better. We don't need people who are unhealthy. I mean, or that we're making unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. And there's two aspects of that. One, we should do it just because we're, we care about being good people, but it's also, you can put an economic number on it. It costs yeah. our community a lot of money to have people who aren't well cared for. Yeah. That's, that's so true. And it's interesting, you know, uh, There's a line of thinking um, that's really interesting and comes into play, I think, here. It seems like you've kind of embraced it at some level. And one is, you know, kind of systems thinking. You look at all the different parts that contribute to the system. And then there's also the concept of regenerative thinking in which you seem to you, you, you say, okay, we can make it better. But how can we how do you know, how do we go beyond the 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 goal of just no, no harm done. Right. How do we, how do we make it regenerative? How do we, so the way we might look at this within the context that you work is, gee, there's a lot of humanity that are hungry. What a great resource. How can we better utilize these people in the overall system? So let's, let's not just feed them. Let's, let's, let's create a system that allows them to thrive so that we all thrive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so there's a lot to say about that. <laughs> That's the hard part of the work. The the food bank is a the easy part is being the band-aid. I hate the term, but you know, do we 
fill in the belly, whatever. So we have a program called Together We Grow. Um, food banks are really starting to embrace this. Gets me excited as a social worker. It is really um, about helping people figure out what it is they want to do with their lives and the skill sets they have or gain new skill sets so that they're, um, they take care of themselves and their family with whatever they choose to do with their life. So I don't go to a food pantry anymore. It probably feels weird to people, people hear me talk about this because they're like, this isn't what a food bank does. Well, we're preventing needing exactly. needs you. And our class is intense. It's five weeks. It's intense as a cohort. It's a social support group. It's a, um, they get to learn, they get, you know, some, some information that seems pretty traditional, like, do you, are you a banked person or not? Do you keep your money under your mattress or do you use a payday loan or whatever? Do you want, let's teach you about what, what the opportunities are in banking. If you embrace it, great. If not, we can help them set up a bank account, but they get a stipend for being in our program. So they're getting a wage to be able to, to be in this and we'll match a savings. Um, if they start saving after they've um, come out of the program. Um, we'll oh, that's excellent. That. And we stay with them for a whole year. So it's not just about a job. So we've got a social worker assigned to them and then a professional development. So it's more about what do you see you want to do for the, your livelihood, if you want to, your financial livelihood, and then what are those barriers? Are you caring for your parent? Do you have a disabled child? Do you have a special needs child? Do you not have a car? So if we if we throw someone at this without this, it's not really very fair. They need you need to have that foundation and support. Some folks that aren't, some of us are very fortunate to have wonderful support systems. Not everybody does. Sometimes your support system is what has gotten you in the situation that you're in already. And so this exactly. is going to give you that other set of people that care about you and want to see you thrive. But like I said, that work is, we've only been doing it since 2017 and it's hard. It's the harder of the work, um, but it's very exciting. Um, and we have some people who have gone on to do really amazing things. You know, they're amazing people to begin with. They just needed someone to remind them of that. That's all. Yeah, right on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's a lot like, it's a, you know, it sounds a lot like um, the work that Max uh, Gerald is doing with Project Reach as well, except for you, you're doing it on a, on a larger scale the whole, across the whole community and right. not that subset of the community, which nonetheless is certainly in great need. So that's that really is exciting. Um, to see those kinds of things happen in our, in our community. And of course, one of the reasons that we do this podcast is to build those bridges. So, you know, people don't always, in, in our community, especially if, if you take people who haven't been up into North Bryan, into North Bryan, they're just shocked. And I would have to say that the majority of people in college station would be shocked to drive through those neighborhoods. And so I think that part, I'm guessing that part of this whole thing um, of, of, of creating better opportunities for people who may have had support systems that took them in the wrong direction is ha having cross access to the community. And that's, and that's beneficial in both directions. So yeah. uh, it, it's really exciting to see those kinds of things happening. So the food bank was in place before you were here. When was, how long has the food bank been in place? Since 1985. So in a couple of years, it'll be our 40th anniversary. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's pretty exciting. Well, it's like I said, it's exciting, but it's also like, wow, we've been, this has been a problem. I mean, it was a problem before 1985, I'm not being naive, but this was an organized response to a problem. 
back in 1985 and we're still still at it you know there's yeah. that's the hard part about it i mean when we get we moved into a new building in 2017 that's a lot larger and that you know there's a lot of people saying well are you telling me that there's that much more need or um why are you building a kingdom over there and you know i i'm, I'm not trying to buy build a kingdom but i am because of my background you know and the next person whoever that is that runs the food bank may see it differently but there's a great network of food pantries in all of the communities that we serve that want to do the work of, of giving giving food out to people. They, they are passionate about it and they want to do that. But what can we do above and beyond that? And that's all the programs that we've started here um, because we have a building. We have paid staff. We're here t- nine to five, Monday through Friday, we're not volunteer run. So we can do these other things, but those services may not be the big bang for your buck. I'm not going to say we did 10,000, 10 million, whatever pounds, but um, it's going to be pretty impactful on an individual's life. So that's been really important that we do that. And that took a different kind of building. We needed to have a new huge cooler freezer and I'm already needing another cooler because 40% of what we give out is fresh produce. You know, that's that's very important to me. It's also very important to the state of Texas. I mean, there's so much beautiful produce here. We don't want, we don't access all of it as the consumer. So then what happens to it? Well, guess what? Most of it's going to food banks and I want to be one of them. So yeah, absolutely. Um, and that benefits the whole community. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, I think one, you know, one way for people to think about this too, is anybody who's a parent has children and those of us who are fortunate not to have to, to worry about where our child is going to get their next meal. If you just think about what it would be like to see your child be hungry. I mean, that just tugs at your heartstring so, so desperately that hopefully everybody can recognize the, the vast benefit that the food bank does for our community and the individuals in our community. You know, it's, it, it's really easy to lose sight of the individual in the statistics, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, and that, always concerns me because I also don't want anyone to stereotype who individuals are that may need a hand, a helping hand once in a while. And I think that changed a lot because of the pandemic. The pandemic really became an equalizer when we were doing the big super distributions that, you know, thousands of people would come through in a couple of hours all, all kinds of folks, you know, people trying to not lose their house, people not <laughs> trying to hold on to whatever it is that they, they could and probably blowing through their retirement and savings while they were doing that. But and I, I honestly feel like that has, has helped people understand. I can't say that all of us are one paycheck away from that happening, but we all need to be cognizant of, of change, how quickly your life can change and for various different reasons. I saw an amazing statistic last week in the New York Times, 48% of families who make more than $100,000 live paycheck to paycheck. That's incredible. I mean, that's, and it used to not be at 100,000. It used to be more like 40 or so. And then I, I, COVID definitely has to have an impact, had an impact on that. And that's, but that's, if people are facing that or not just like not thinking about it, that's, that's scary. That's it is scary. And, and COVID, I mean, the, the fact is, is that COVID impacted all of us um, and it impacted most of us negatively. But 
there are other events in any, in an individual's life that can have a similar impact, mm-hmm. um, uh, an illness or, or something catastrophic, such as the house fire or something. And, and you realize, oh, we didn't have enough insurance or there's just so many things that can disrupt the apple card of one's trajectory of where they want to be in life. One of the things that we had anecdotally knew before the pandemic was that a lot of people who um, are in a line at a food pantry have an outstanding medical bill that they can't pay, something that was, they didn't have health insurance at all, which we know Texas is one of the most uninsured states in the nation. Um, We turn around, we turn away so much money because we won't uh, take take the uh, Medicaid extension. We don't fill that donut hole loop or whatever they call it. Yep, yep, no. And I, I can tell you this, that, you know, the Brazos Valley Food Bank is part of Feeding Texas and Feeding Texas is our state association. And we do a lot of advocacy, always trying to push the legislature to open open their hearts and open their minds and see things a little differently when it comes to that. Is there local advocacy that can be done? I'm sure you probably do. But I, what I'm thinking about, of course, is the living wage. You know, there are communities that have adopted a living wage within their community. And um, statistically, uh, going back and looking at the economic health of those communities, they fared not only not been hurt, they've been they benefited from it. Is, is it possible to consider something like that at our, at our local level or is that beyond reach? No, no, no. I mean, when I first got at the got to the food bank and I thought you were involved in it, there was we were, a living wage initiative. Yeah, yeah, but it backfired, right? So we, we fought for a living wage for the people on campus. Yeah. We managed to get a, a dollar an hour. A few years later, they fired them all and turned them over to subcontractors who can exploit them even more. Yeah. And the other part that probably is a little more nuanced is that dollar an hour more threw some of them off of the government programs, which made it a little bit harder. A little harder. Well. Right, right. So there, it, yeah, no, it, 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 I think it could be done. I think it would be important. I, there's already research. I don't remember who it is, but there's, there's sites that you can go to that say what the living wage needs to be, what your living wage needs to be. If you live in Bryan and College Station is pro- primarily based off of how housing, housing costs, which are mm-hmm. pretty high here. And there's a lot of businesses that are, that are not paying anywhere near that. So, but I don't, right. you know, A&M is one employer, they're obviously the largest employer, and they do influence the rate weight wages that most other businesses have. But, you know, getting, I, I don't think that's a fruitless effort. I just, I don't know where to start on that. That's um, right. It's, I mean, it's a, it's not just, it's a mindset. It's hard to get people to, who, who have the bootstraps to recognize that not everybody's born with bootstraps. <laughs> But it's also, it's very much tied into the state that we, our, our minimum wage is still the federal minimum wage, you know? And if, so if we're going to have employers that are going to pay that, what does a, what incentive does A&M have to pay more than that, which they do, but more than what they already do when there's other businesses out here that don't, you know? So it's, that's a right tough conversation to have in this community, to be honest. It is. It is. It, I mean, it was, you know, when we made the effort and it must have been, I don't know. It was know. 2005 because I was in the video and I didn't know what I was talking about back then, you know, and I remember <laughs> thinking this community's got it going on. This is great. And then I remember hearing that people were getting kicked off of their food stamps and they didn't get their childcare um, subsidies anymore. And, you know, just kind of the things that maybe we hadn't thought about as comprehensively as we were. Unintended consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, 
Right. And I mean, it wasn't, we weren't shooting for a dollar an hour. We were shooting for a living wage, but that's all A&M would give. And then that, you know, so you're doing tremendous work in our community for a huge section of our community that is often unseen. How do people connect with the, the good efforts you're doing? It's really, I mean, it really depends on the person's interest. Um, I can tell you just this week, the kinds of conversations that I've had with my staff, we've got anywhere from Texas A&M professors that want to study where our food is going and GIS map it and where the need is and things like oh, that. Cool. Also really exciting. Yeah, very exciting to folks every day are in here in this building sorting through food. You know, if that's your thing and that's going to be fun um, um, or you have a group of people that need a team building organize, uh, event or exercise, but you really want to talk and have fun. It's easy work to sort food, but you can come and still catch up on family and friends and, and figure out what they're doing and make a, a pretty um, recognizable impact. You'll walk out of here seeing what you were able to do, and we can explain to you where it's going to go. Um, oftentimes, I mean, there's been times where people were like pulling an order to, for us together, and it was going on the truck and going right to Franklin right there at that moment. So, you know, if you hadn't been here today, that those families in that community may not have get fed just because you helped us pull some boxes together. I mean, it's that crucial. It's that vital. But we also have folks that are very interested in a little bit being a little bit closer to the folks, the people, the faces, as you describe it, you know. And so when we do those mobiles, if you're willing to go drive an hour and stand out in the elements, whether it's the heat or the wind or the dirt, you're going to be putting food directly in people's cars. And I, I love to have almost every one of our board members and staff members go do that because it is eye-opening, um, but it's also reminds you why we do what we do. If, if your job here is pushing paper, which someone's got to do that, you're going to remember why you're pushing the paper because you're going to see people lining up three hours early for your box of food that we have that you think, wow, is that really worth three hours of wait? Well, yeah, it, it is to about 200 people every time we go out there. So, yeah. but so volunteering, donating, um, being on the board so that there's governance opportunities. So what about, let's let's take a couple of scenarios. Some people have the means where they don't necessarily have the time. Um, mm -hmm. I assume they can make donations. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, on our website, you can donate all the time. We have lots of people that like to just have a donation every month. That's easy for them to do. Um, so it can be reoccurring. It's painless. Um, they're not the kinds of people that want to go to an event. They're not the kinds of people that want to respond to direct mail. And that's totally fine. We do some events. Our events are a little more it's the provincial. They're not fancy. We don't have galas, things like that, because it doesn't quite to me fit our image. But we have a few of those throughout the year. And that is, you know, so that's some people love to do that. And that's when All they right. want to give, give a lot. We it's, it's right down to kids instead of getting presents at their birthday parties having people bring canned goods oh, and then the go. family bringing the canned goods over i mean there's so many and people doing food drives for us and that can be churches and it can be student groups are needed what about team building activities say there was a small company you know let's just hypothetically say they were like um remodeling company or <laughs> <laughs> what might the opportunities look like to do some team building so when I talk to you about the special programs that we do, we end up making um, a food box or a food bag item that has to be assembled. And so those are all done. Like, for instance, there's 1,700 backpacks for kids that go out every week. 
somebody's got to put those together. So we have mini assembly lines back to my day from when my dad was in the factory where groups go around. You're going to put two of this in there, one of this in it, um, go around and you just make as many as you can make in an hour with, with the team. And like I said, once you've done it once, you don't have to think about it anymore. And so then you get to hear all the excitement with the group of talking. How's your daughter? How's your mom? Did you meet your deadline at work? Things like that. But then at the end, you're going to see you've made this big palette of, you know, 1,700, 300, whatever the case may be, bags specifically for a child for the weekend. Um, and that, that's, we're, we're doing that almost um, every Saturday with groups. And we have a couple of evenings during the week because, you know, the kind of group you're talking about is working during the day. So they can't necessarily come during that time. But we want to have opportunities outside of that for people to be involved in that as well. Right, right. Okay, you've spoken about a web page. What's that URL? It's uh, bvfb.org. So it stands for Brazos Valley Food Bank.org. Great. Okay, Teresa, is there anything else that uh, the community should know about your great efforts? You know, a new focus of ours now, and it should have never been a new focus, it should have always been a focus, is, I mean, we always ask our, our individuals that are part of our services, people facing hunger, what they liked about what they received, what they didn't like, um, what could be better. Um, but that, that consumer feedback is really, really important. I encourage anybody who's ever had to visit a pantry or deal with a food bank to tell me good or bad, what that may have been like, because we can't fix it if we don't know. And hand in hand with that is really figuring out how we as an organization embrace DEI, um, diversity, equity, inclusion in the organization with our processes and procedures, but also how we make our decisions about where our resources go, where the food goes, where... Um, the next new backpack program is going to be set up. How, uh, those are important factors that we need to take into consideration. Um, and we're actively working on that a lot. I mean, we, were, we put out a statement after the um, murder of George Floyd that I got the board and all of staff to be a part of to say, you know, we have this vision of the Brazos Valley being hunger-free. We can't be hunger-free if there's racism. We, we can't. It's not going to happen. Um, and it took, it took some communications and some dialogues for the board to understand what, how those things were tied together. And um, we had some donors that have dropped us because we made the statement. Isn't that so uh, ironic? I mean, it, their very I, denial I, is an act of racism. I tried to keep them, but I said, you know, my staff were like, why are you trying to keep them? I'm like, well, because I, I want to change their mind. And they're like, you're not going to do that. Give up. So, you know, it's okay. We knew that. I knew that coming in. In fact, it was fewer than I thought would happen, to be honest. Um, but occasionally, for... it's still on our website. We still have people say, what does that mean? I don't, I'm confused by that. And when someone says, what does that mean? I'm confused by that. It usually means I don't agree with it. And I want to hear what you mean by it. And you're just going to substantiate that I don't agree with it. But I'm not going to shy away from the fact that that is extremely important. All of the research that is out there is going to tell you that black and brown people have higher rates of food insecurity, um, health disparity. <laughs> and that's kind of like one of those duh things, right? Well, it isn't apparently for everyone in our community, but right. it is important for our staff. It's important in our hiring. It's important in our board makeup. It's Funders are asking about it now as well. Eat up. H-E-B, Kroger, if you want to get money from them, they want to know 
the makeup of who you're serving, the makeup of your staff and the makeup of your board. So there's, oh, there's, that's great. there's movement happening on this. Well, that's an interesting, and that's such an interesting thing because, uh, you know, you're trying to solve it within your organization, but we, but uh, you're also a community service organization. We need to solve it within our community. And, um, you know, it, just as a small company owner, it's something that, uh, that I have been very intent on. And I'd have to say that I have significantly failed at. So, you oh, know. Well, yeah, we, no, we, <laughs> that's for another podcast for how <laughs> not to do things. Um, but um, I think most people will give you grace for trying, having it be a value, having it be a focus, acknowledging it and talking about it. So, yeah, but that's um, not enough. As a community, no. how do we overcome it? How do we get people to recognize it's such a simple, thing how do we get people to recognize that once you've taken generational wealth for many 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 generations those people don't have the same opportunity that's just such a simple fundamental thing and how come we can't what does it take to get people to understand that and and i'm i'm not asking that philosophically i'm asking that strategically what what can we do not as teresa not as hugh but what can we do as the community of the brazos valley to help reach that level of understanding well i don't have the answers but i honestly and this is going to sound like a cop-out but there needs to be leadership so there needs to be someone that has influence to say this is what we want for the community and this is what we need for the community and bring people together that need to talk about it or and some that may not agree with it but are going to be vital to making it happen and have the dialogue, hard dialogue. And I would advise an amazing facilitator be involved in those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. And we do have some really tremendous young leadership uh, in this capacity mm-hmm. from the minority communities. Yeah. And I think yeah. what we really are looking for is it, it's it's also, it's got to be multiracial. Um, yes. So we as white people don't get a pass to say, y'all go figure that out. Or yep. we don't get to tell them to tell us how to do it because that's not fair either. Yeah, it's, it's com- I think, Hugh, if it was easy, it would have been done already. So, <laughs> Well, I have to say this. I'm, I'm encouraged by some of the leadership in our community, like Trey Watson and mm-hmm. Ebony Peterson and, and Max Garrell and people, and, and you, people who, we really do have leadership in this community who's working to solve these problems. It's just, you know, where's that, where's that insight that hits the tipping point? You know, I'll say this. And most people won't like how it sounds, but oftentimes it takes someone um, having a personal experience to understand it. it, But it's like that with everything. It was like that with COVID. It's like that with poverty. But until you have a friend who had, who is different than you and can explain it to you or show you, or you witness it with them, sometimes that's what it takes for some people. Because I, I don't know, it's threatening to admit that what you are is not that you as the person, but what you are is part of the problem or your race or your gender or whatever. It feels, it's threatening, it's scary. Um, obviously, I know that once you can get past that, amazing things can happen, but getting people past that point is a lot, can be a lot it's, of work. It's such a small step from there to saying, yeah. oh, we have an opportunity. <laughs> but I remember that even from my work in sexual violence, because in Georgia, you know, I can say things about living in Georgia was difficult, but the police academy, and maybe they do it here. I don't do that work here, but the police academy, all the new recruits there got trained by me on mm-hmm. issues of how to work with someone who was a survivor and how not to. 
And that whole idea of it being power and control, any kind of violence is, you know, doing in the spectrum of where the violence is on that and going through that with all of them and then the understanding that a man could be raped and all the jokes and all that. But really having those conversations, I would say probably one out of 50 of them would be like, aha, they had the moment. But we got the opportunity to do that every time they had a new um, batch of new recruits. I'm guessing you still have that opportunity in a different capacity. I'm guessing that when people hand food to people who aren't necessarily getting a meal all the time, that that has a big impact. Yeah, it does. It's just, I look at things, yes, we're doing that, but to change the system so someone doesn't need to get food handed to them is going to take people in different positions of power. And Hugh, you know this as you go up, there's fewer women, there's fewer people of color. So then you're going to have more of the resistance to the mindset of what we're talking about. So you know, one of the cool things about our organization is as soon as you can hire, you hire somebody pretty decently high up that it doesn't look like you, they get and they get to hire people, the makeup of your organization changes. And so that's, I, there's a lot of that happening at the food bank. Um, and it's been incredibly fulfilling for me to see the different perspectives that come with in everything that we do here, even to the, what makes a driver's job makes it so that someone's going to want to stay here and not go work somewhere else because word on the street they get this over there to nobody knows what to do that with that donation that came from the valley we don't even know what it is we need some recipes for that and if you're definitely going to send it to this particular location which is highly white they don't want it or over here where most of the people that visit are hispanic they're not you know whatever it's it's Right. It all plays into it. We don't want to waste food. We don't want to waste resources. We don't want to give people stuff that they don't want or don't like or can't use. So it's all interwoven into, honestly, if we really think about it in every in all of our lives, but it very much is in the food bank. You know, it's so exciting. I, I remember when you got the position and you were so excited and, and thinking about the opportunities and to now hear everything that you've done. It's um, It's a success story, I think. I know you must feel like you've got to keep going. There's so much more to do, but just what you have done is really tremendous. And uh, our whole community should be very proud. Well, thank you. I've had a lot of wonderful board members, a lot of great staff, and we have a lot of great volunteers. Um, Some that come almost every day, um, have been for years. You don't get to hear them on the podcast, but they're the ones picking up the bread at HEB and interact. I mean, you know, uh, they could be doing something else. So that's the one thing that I think, you know, moving from a anti-violence work to food bank, I thought, what am I, what am I going to, that's so different. Um, but what, what's so great about a food bank is it is a community organization. Like we can't do what we do without a lot of help from the community. And as we've described it, most people can figure out a way to get involved with yeah. whatever works with their, with their income, time, skill set. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for spending time with us today, Teresa. We're um, clearly you're capable of creating enough growth that we're going to have to have you on before too long again. <laughs> so I sure look forward to that. Okay, Teresa. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.